Hello and welcome to Farmerama. This month's episode is a little different to usual, as we weave in and out of a conversation we had with Dame Fiona Reynolds, former Director General of the National Trust. Her book, The Fight for Beauty, is a call to arms for us all to pay more attention to matters of the earth and oceans, as she charts the power of the people and campaigns through hundreds of years of land disputes in the UK. Of course, farming and fishing communities feature heavily in this fight. We caught up with Fiona, and she told us how she sees farming fits into the future of a Britain built on beauty. We are well aware that beauty seems a little airy-fairy and disconnected from the realities of running a farming business, but please do hear us out to the end. I was a bit sceptical at first as well, and still have some questions around it, but I do think there is something there that we can all identify with. Plus, we're going to hear what some farmers think about beauty and some of the other issues which come up in our chat, such as rewilding. We get to listen in to Martin Peck asking his longtime neighbour and fellow upland sheep farmer Reese Roberts for some of his thoughts. Here's a bit about Reese. Reese Roberts from uh, Duffery Tarrant, which is a valley in northeast Wales. I'm a upland farmer, although the farm Farms in this area are more what we call in this area Havard and Hendry, which is a traditional way of farming, valley bottom up to the mountain. In our case, the valley bottom is at 450 foot above sea level, and the top of our hill mountain is 2,200. So typical of the area, it rapidly rises to the top of the Berwyn range. And we sheep farmers. I have been dairy in the past, but as I've got older and slowed down, I've now beef and sheep. Uh, we, as a family, have lived in this area for generations and hope to continue living in this area for generations. We'll hear more from Rhys later, but a big thanks to Martin for taking the time to record Rhys and for Rhys being so honest and willing to let us know what he thinks. It's brilliant to hear the views of an upland sheep farmer. This voice is so often missing from the debate. You will also hear from spiritual ecologist and the artist behind the milking parlour, Nessie Reed. Here she is telling us a bit about herself. My name is Nessie Reed and I am creator of the Milking Parlour, which is a um, ongoing art project looking at the future of our food system and engaging the public in thinking about where our food comes from and the politics behind our food. Um, and I'm also a fellow at the St Ethelberger's Spiritual Ecology Fellowship which is a year-long fellowship looking into how do we apply the principles of spiritual ecology to our work. And so the conversation with Fiona begins. We start with beauty. I don't see beauty as just about aesthetics or the sort of superficial attractiveness of a place. I see beauty almost as a a sense of moral purpose. It's a way of looking at the world, of valuing the things that money can't buy, of recognising there's a sort of spiritual connection that we have through valuing the kind of unquantifiables. And I get really nervous when people say, oh, let's make beauty a sort of part of this exercise or try and corral it in some way, because for me it is about values. So one of the reasons I'm so passionate about reviving the fight for beauty is I think it gives people a language that they can use when they're not experts. You know, people can feel intimidated by the planning system and having to justify in technical ways why this place is special or, um, you know, basically being challenged 
by highly paid experts from the developer side that say, you know, you don't know anything, you, you don't, your voice doesn't matter. And I want to empower people to just speak up for places they love and to be able to feel they can defend them and to use arguments that are meaningful to them without having to kind of turn it into an econometric argument or some sort of scientific process. So actually I've got lots of experiences in my life where local people have tried to protect places like that and have been stamped on by you know, the process of bureaucracy and, um, you know, economism, which is the word I that we use in my book. Um, but, you know, for myself, I can remember fighting uh, planning applications um, against quarry developments in the Peak District National Parks and the Yorkshire Dales and that National Park, and determinedly of using the arguments for beauty, and sometimes winning and sometimes not winning. <laughs> but I do think it's about empowering people. That's why I think the word beauty is so important, because as, a, as an individual, it's a word that we use all the time. It's just you never hear it used in official language anymore. It's liberating to just use words that we feel comfortable with in everyday life. And, you know, I'm trying to sort of, in a sense, empower people to speak from the heart with confidence about the vital importance of beautiful places to our general quality of life. I mean, we are at a point in our society where we can't go on getting richer because we're using natural resources at a high pace. We've diminished the quality of our you know, own natural resource base. Uh, we can't just go on seeking material progress. We have to start accepting that a different kind of progress is, is going to be beneficial to the planet and, and beneficial to us if we see it that way. And beauty to me is a way into those arguments, a way of opening our hearts out to a different kind of future. That's really beautiful. I've never heard someone say that that way and reframe what's often sold to us as, well, you just are going to have to have a worse life. We really love the idea of using the word beauty to empower all people to have a say in what happens to the landscapes around them. We asked Nessie and Reese what beauty means to them. For me, beauty relates to a state of the heart. When I find something beautiful, I can feel my heart aching and sometimes something can be almost too beautiful that it aches tremendously like when I look at the, the man I love sometimes it's like painfully beautiful <laughs> and then I think also beauty is not just about functionality I mean some functional things can be beautiful but for me beauty serves a higher purpose than just a day-to-day living and a day-to-day -day functionality it's speaking to a place within our hearts and within our souls that 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 day-to-day yeah, -day life doesn't necessarily do we all have an opinion about beauty and what it is um some people think that it's not necessarily beauty is in the eyes of the beholder for me it's uh, it's my family it's my area you know we all have ideas of what beauty is um but the concern, if we take it into a wider perspective, is that while the nation would feel that they want to protect what is deemed to be beautiful, and maybe in countryside's uh, designations of um, outstanding natural beauty would be one thing, and you know the public require certain elements of beauty to be protected, it is very dangerous for particularly... Um, civil servants or people who are influenced by various economic and maybe even planning 
drivers decide what is beautiful and what is not. Beauty is uh, it's an interesting word, isn't it? And uh, using the Welsh language, it's harddoc, which is not necessarily as a fundamental word as perhaps beauty would be in English. It's more of a, a general term. And other verbs and adjectives are used to add to it, depending on what the context is. At the same time, it's interesting that uh, any any discussion concentrate on one word because one word is not wide enough very often to to describe what you're talking about. And now back to Fiona. We pick up the conversation talking about planning and sustainable land use. I do think land is the forgotten resource in this country. I think we've taken it for granted for too long. Everyone thinks that there's always going to be plenty of land. And yet if you look at what we've done, particularly since the Industrial Revolution, we've squandered land, we've used land too intensively. We have had a planning system which I'm enormously passionate about, but we have also made some bad mistakes. So to me, if we put land at the centre of our vision for this country, I think we'd do a better job. How do you think small-scale farmers could start to see some space to access that land and make a positive contribution to the beauty of the landscape? Well, I think there's basically a big decision got to be made about whether land is used for farming, used for urban development, and of course there are many other demands we place on it for infrastructure, for housing and all the rest of it. But I think when it comes to rural land, it does seem to me that the kind of old principle, you aren't making it anymore, you need to kind of protect the productivity and the well-being of the land as a sort of fundamental objective of policy, I think is absolutely critical. So I would like to see all land that is farmed, farmed well in a kind of profoundly sustainable way, but also producing multiple outputs. We live in a small country with a big population. We can't afford the land just to have one function. It's got to deliver for farming. It's got to deliver for nature. It's got to deliver for people's well-being. It's got to deliver, you know, those wider public goods. So to me, farmers, large or small, actually, have absolutely got a critical role to play in that. So do you know anyone who's already doing things to reform land use in that way? Well, there are a lot of organisations that are really campaigning now for, in this new Brexit world for better land use policies. I mean, you've got organisations like CPRE, the one I used to work for, who are doing a great job on kind of land use strategy from a kind of broadly planning perspective. There are organisations like the National Trust that own great tracts of land. There are RSPB, Wildlife Trust. There are lots and lots of organisations. But I'm not quite sure anybody has this really strong focus on sustainable land use as the absolute core of what we should be trying to achieve post-Brexit in the new world. Where would you put your energy? Well, I put my energy in two places. I put it as much in sustainable cities as I would in sustainable countryside because you can't do one without the other. We need to make our cities beautiful, sustainable, healthy, good places to live. And we also need to make our rural areas productive, but productive in a sustainable sense, places where people can also get those wider benefits from, you know, fresh air, enjoyment of the outdoors, wildlife, all all of the things that, that, that really matter, but that we have rather lost in the last 50 years or so. So I think we've got to have a kind of integrated strategy um, where both the urban areas and the rural areas have to work to new objectives. What do you think about the rewilding debate and the idea that often farmers are pitted against the rewilders? I'm going to start with a bit of context here because 
Our landscape is essentially a farmed landscape and has been for several thousand years. Um, we have, in the process, massively diminished its natural capital, if you like, the, the, the sort of particularly the, the, the resource through biodiversity and wildlife. And we've got to get it back, this is for sure. But I think there's a choice between the way that we get it back, either by kind of literally setting aside and rewilding places, or through a different vision for farming. And my own passionate preference is for a different vision for farming, because that allows you to, over a huge area, do things better. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't places where nature would take precedence, but I worry that the rewilding debate does absolutely divide people into two camps who say, you know, you can't do farming and wildlife together, you have to either do wildlife over here and farming over there, or kind of accept that somehow you've got a, a kind of unbridgeable chasm. So I think that rewilding will have a place, of course, but the much more important debate is how to make farming much better for wildlife, so that the majority of our countryside can be farmed sustainably. We don't have the luxury in this country of huge expanses of land that aren't near where anybody lives as they do in some of the bigger continents or, or whatever. We certainly, I think we do have a place for beavers in this country without question. And what we were talking about is a gradation. You know, there will be some areas that are still, you know, where production is the main purpose, the majority purpose. And there'll be others on the a sort of sliding scale where nature is much more dominant and I think the hills and uplands are places where you know nature would take a much much stronger role partly because the economics of what we produce for food there is very questionable and highly influenced by the old CAP which we're not going to have anymore so we can choose to make all that much much better for nature so I'm not so worried about the kind of internal tensions between beavers and trees and all the rest of it because actually I think it's much more important we have a look at how you know, we get that much bigger picture view um, of, particularly in our hills and uplands, of much less intensive farming, within which there will be places for beavers, but there will still be, I bet, and rightly so, some production going on. Yeah, because I know some upland sheep farmers, and they're, they're the people who are the most angry about the rewilding debate, because they're often... <laughs> sectioned off as like the least Im or the least productive so they're the first to go yeah. so what, what would you say to them well I've been working with hill farmers all my life my grandfather was a hill farmer I, and I'm a, a really passionate advocate for hill farmers because I also believe that we have a cultural landscape you know this is a landscape made by and for and with people and it's not um, something that you can just sort of sweep aside centuries of um, a really important part of our culture. Uh, farming in the uplands will change, of course, because it is an artificial construct, but it should not be without people. It should not be without sheep. Um, I have to say, I, I love sheep. We have got too many of them at the moment, but I love sheep, and I think they're part of our um, history and our future. Um, so I think it's this question about the gradation, about saying in some places that you know, sheep farming will be much less economic, but it shouldn't go. And much of the Lake District, for example, you know, I would passionately defend hill farming in the Lake District, but it'd probably be less intense, it would be structured and supported in a different way, and it would produce other benefits alongside it. It's great to hear Fiona sees the value in upland hill farmers, but not everyone does. Martin asked Reese about the life of an upland sheep farmer and what he felt about the rewilding debate. What would you say is unique about upland sheep farmers? That's a good question, I think. I don't know that... Uh, unique is not 
a word I would use because uh, people are the same, farmers are the same, plumbers are the same the world over in a sense, in the general sense. Um, I think probably upland farmers have to live in isolation very often or communities are fairly isolated communities and therefore they create their own communities and their own uh, the, the driving force is to you know, live with nature and uh, communicate with the outside world when they need to and when they want to. So it's a little bit of that. It's not, it's not isolation, unless it's by choice. It's, um, it's just the environment we live in, really. So I suppose, I suppose that's not necessarily unique, but it's uh, singularly a requirement. If you're an upland farmer, you have to adapt to that, that way of life. Uh, you know, we understand what the various seasons and the various moods of the weather will have its effect on us really so we have to be very aware of how those things work what do you think about the idea of rewilding parts of britain what and maybe what does rewilding mean to you yeah yeah i i've um struggled with that I, my first reaction i probably still believe it is that uh, it's an idea certain people have uh, expounded uh, as a marquee you know a marquee idea that they suddenly dreamt in the middle of the night. The thing about rewilding, as I understand it, and I don't pretend to understand how George Monbiot's thought processes work, ignores a lot of reality. We're all very, very concerned about conservation and uh, protecting our environment. Nobody, I, I believe, has the right to think that they have a monopoly on good ideas or wisdom. And... Um, in the case of rewilding, as, you know, as I was saying, I think they are ignoring some realities. By rewilding, we reintroduce species that are not necessarily endangered because they exist in in Europe. It's not a problem from the genetics and the, the, you know that side of it. It's some idea that uh, the whole structure of uh, the upland areas, particularly maybe other areas as well, can be changed to some prehistoric scenario. So I really do think that people who think about rewilding in terms of bringing in species that perhaps weren't here before, and sadly the dodo is not one of the options that they can do unless the scientists can work some miracle, should concentrate on the endangered species that are already have a problem in Britain. And uh, I think by working together, the upland farmer, the lowland farmer, conservationist, those so-called intellectuals could do far more good for their environment and have these marquee ideas that mean nothing in reality. And point is, it's an endanger to the people who live in those communities. Do you really want to lose the people that live in these communities? Because that is the risk that you take. Removing what Mr. Mombio calls the white maggots of sheep not, doesn't do anything necessarily to sheep because they'll go somewhere else, they'll be kept somewhere else but it will remove the communities. And I don't think we can afford to lose those, that pool of expertise and, and, and great interest in the countryside that people living in upland communities have. The resource that we have in the upland areas, we can talk at length about air and water, clean air, clean water. Um, all these things, are, you know, carbon sink, they're all very, very important and we need to preserve them and, and uh, nurture them as best we can but I, you know i really do think that one of those primary elements is food as well and production of food for the community and this is what the upland area does that 
some people would think, well, let the lowland areas do that and we can have the upland areas catering for some, some other need that community has, community benefit. But community benefits from... Uh, nobody, nobody in the lowlands will keep the sheep, for instance, that uh, the, the, uh, the nation would, would require. You'd have to import them from denuded um, areas of Australia or New Zealand in the end that uh, don't have the same principles, perhaps, sometimes that we would have especially if there is care taken. Yes, again, it's difficult for me not to... You'd be quiet about it. <laughs> you just ask the questions. <laughs> yeah, no, it's really good. What would be lost would be the people. Yeah. What would be gained would be... Um, it depends how you know, rewilding or uh, the ecological rebalancing, how it manipulates. But uh, what I fear is people who um, don't really understand these areas and the need to be in control. So um, what would be lost is people with proper understanding of what's needed. It really does worry me that uh, you hear statements from politicians and groupings of uh, so-called um, charities who say, oh, well, you know, let the lowlands produce the food and the uplands do something else. That is so, so um, insulting to the intelligence of those people who live in the various areas. It's a patchwork. It's a mosaic. Yeah. How, how anybody can could be so simplistic as to talk in those terms is, is very worrying. Nessie also had a few thoughts on what rewilding means to her, something quite different altogether. When we talk about rewilding, it's not just a rewilding of our natural landscapes, it's a rewilding of ourselves, of that beauty. And I think it's a stripping from a Buddhist perspective, which is, I come, which is what I come from. It's how do we strip away the incessant endless nagging noise of the mind and how do we rewild and repopulate our mind with much bigger much more important stories and I think when we look at things like cosmology and the, our bigger place in the human history we need to think about what kind of mark are we going to leave behind and what do we stand for and I want that to be a beautiful one I want the architecture to be beautiful I want our science to be beautiful and I suppose when I say beautiful I mean ultimately serving the greater good of humanity so going back to rewilding, I think it's really about how do we rewild ourselves, but also how do we live in landscapes where it's not just completely anthropocentric, where it becomes more biocentric, where nature is valued and revered and respected, rather than man always having to have such great dominion. And finally, back to Fiona for her thoughts on putting all this into policy and practice. An ideal vision would be where we valued all the products from the land and found a kind of harmony between them. So of course we're going to produce food, we need to produce food, but we also have a crisis in nature, we also have major human benefits that we need from land, we also have um, things that we didn't understand 20 or 30 years ago, like protection against flooding and, you know, those other sort of wider land uses. And we, we have a much stronger need to protect our soil and the integrity of our soil. I think for me it isn't about being prescriptive, but it is about having an ambition for harmony, for um, making decisions at a relatively local level that are uh, based on the particular qualities and characteristics of that area but which also try to you know, balance off, if you like, uh, the best way of delivering multiple outputs from the land. I'm sure you read the CPRE report mm. and the, their new model farming section. What did you think of that? 
I think there are loads of ideas in that that I would completely agree with, actually. But it won't be, you know, nobody will just pick that up and implement it. I think what we're looking for out of this change, we're looking for a simpler farm policy. You know, the common agricultural policy is fraught with bureaucracy and complications. I think we're looking for some high-level principles that are about... Uh, multiple out objectives about sustainability, about soil protection, about nature's revival, about public benefit. But we're also looking, I think, for more delegated responsibility to local level where the detail of what incentives are given and what encouragement are given to farmers you know, is attuned to the character and the need of particular areas. Mm -hmm. We don't try and prescribe it all from the centre, mm -hmm. um, but we do recognise that there is you know, diversity in our landscape and, and we need to reflect that in policy. What would you say to farmers going forward about subsidies? Well, I haven't got a new one in my pocket, but I do think that we do need to support sustainable farming in this country. I don't think it would survive in a free market environment. Um, and actually, some of the lessons we've learned of the past, and you know, my book charts painfully, you know, all the fights we had, in fact, we, we have learned some very good skills about how to support environmentally responsible farming through initially the ESA process, through countryside stewardship, through all of these um, pillar two kind of payments. And I don't think we should throw that knowledge away. We should remember, you know, where we've come from. So I think we do need some high-level principles, which everybody, every farmer has to accede to. You know, you can't trash the soil, you can't fundamentally, you know, damage nature you can't you've, and, and you do need to produce food in a sustainable way but then i think there will be sub subsidies available for particular benefits delivered and um, some of that may be for certain food crops still there may well be a case more vegetables actually we've never subsidized vegetables maybe because of the questions of diet and all the rest of it we'll need to do that. We, that those are discussions we need to have but i think more importantly it will be clear that there will be certain public benefits that won't be delivered unless they're subsidised. Mm -hmm. And that's where you know, the work's going on about wildlife landscape, heritage, flood protection, soil conservation, you know, those things will all be, I think, necessarily supported under a new system. Farming is inherently a very risky business and for very little reward, economically, generally. So a lot of farmers would say, oh, it's all very well talking about beauty and nature, but, you know, our livelihoods on the line so of course I'll spray the chemicals or I'll add the nitrogen or I'll cut down the trees what's the retort to that I think it, it depends entirely on what you're trying to produce I mean if you're trying to produce food as cheaply as possible with very low environmental standards to meet a trade deal with say America for the sake of argument then of course that's how you know, that's how the picture will look. But you know what? In the UK, we could have a much better vision than that. We could have a vision to be a clean, green country that has high standards of production, high standards of animal welfare, high standards of, you know, industrial policy, and that our exports are, if you like, the best in the world. And then if our subsidy system and our regulatory system was designed to sustain that, actually that's, that, would, that would frame the economic... You know, proposition that farmers would buy into, and they wouldn't be therefore just trying to, you know, drive to the bottom and drive for the cheapest outcome. Because actually, the system would be constructed around something that was high quality, good for the environment, and good for, you know, the broader sort of reputation of the UK. Mm -hmm. So I think it depends entirely on how we construct 
the vision. Mm-hmm. Um, I fear the race for the bottom. Uh, I think many people do. But actually, we have a choice. We could do it completely the other way. And that would give farmers, for the first time, a sense that they were entirely in tune, if you like, with what the nation wanted from them and not somehow fighting against it. Actually, farmers also say we are conservationists in our blood and I think we should take that at face value and design a system that plays to that desire farmers say they have to be stewards, to be farming in a way that's good for the future as well as good for today. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that's a challenge, I think, to design a system that genuinely supports that. But then one other side to that debate is, like, how do we produce food for people who, you know, have low incomes? Where do they fit into that picture? Well, I think that's where, again, it's this question about integration. At the moment, our social <coughs> policies don't really have much to say about food and diets, don't have much to say about healthy eating, about you know, well-being. But it's entirely possible to design a system which says that you know, as part of the sort of social subsidy network for people in genuine need, there is help for people to have access to healthy food and to be supported to, whether it's grow their own, which isn't practical for everybody, but cook from, from ingredients rather than buying prepackaged food. You know, there are things we could do. There's a whole raft of ambitions for the education system about teaching children to grow, teaching children to appreciate food, teaching children to enjoy eating vegetables and, you know, actually know what a healthy diet is. So, again, it's about joining up and having a much more connected vision rather than saying, oh dear, people can't afford expensive packaged food, which Mm -hmm. is true. And I think this is why, you know, the Brexit debate, which is quite divisive and quite difficult, you know, has to be a moment where we ask ourselves some really fundamental questions about the direction we're going and what we want. And if all we do is go for the cheapest possible production of food, you know, rock-bottom standards, we'll pay for it in one way or another. Mm -hmm. If, on the other hand, we say, no, this is a moment where we can right some of the past wrongs, put together a package which is much more sustainable, much better for society as a whole, restores our wildlife but produces food in a sustainable way, then that's a prize, I think, that we should aim for. And I genuinely think that beauty as an argument helps to create that positive vision. Brilliant. Well, I wouldn't say that, but yeah, yeah, thank you. Give me the chance to say a few things. I hope it's rational because I don't want well sound, you know, fundamentalist one way or the other. So there you have it. A spiritual ecologist, a long-time institution leader and policy advisor, and a lifelong farmer with a range of perspectives on beauty and rewilding. We hope you've found Fiona's fight for beauty a voice you want to support. I find it interesting that we're hearing more of these softer words such as harmony and beauty in a farming context. I understand Reese's concern of who decides what beauty is, but I think that ultimately Fiona has shown that throughout history the word can actually be a support to Reese and upland farmers like him. Beauty is a unifier. It's a cause that everyone in the community can identify with and fight for. Whether you're convinced about beauty or not, it seems one thing is clear. Neither Fiona, nor Nessie, nor Reese believe that it's a good idea to let productivity be the main thing which shapes our landscape. Thank you for listening. 
And thank you to all our guests and to Joe and Katie who worked with me to put this episode together. We would love to hear your thoughts, so please do tweet us or comment on Instagram and get in touch. I'll see you next time with more stories from smaller scale agriculture in the UK and beyond on Farmerama.